You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Week Ahead podcast with Chuck and Rachel. Um, we recorded the audio that's going to follow this uh, earlier today. And first of all, there were some recording issues, so we apologize for that. But second of all, right after we finished recording, we got some very exciting news uh, that Chuck Marone of Strong Towns had been named to Plan Edison's 100 Most Influential Urbanist lists. And not just that, but he was number 10 on this list out of 100. Chuck, what is your first reaction to this exciting news? Hey, um, <laughs> I just, I mean, I just found this out like 10 minutes ago. Um, we, we knew that I would be on the list because they published the, the top whatever and had a voting. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting because, yeah, this is this is a little like... I mean, Planet is an, is an, is an online publication. Um, it's a little like going to a Star Trek convention and asking them, you know, what's your favorite sci-fi show? <laughs> you know, you, you're kind of stacking the deck in like a certain direction. Um, yeah. so, you know, you're asking digital online people to vote in a digital online thing. And of, of course I'm going to do better than say Walt Disney, um, or, uh, who's some of the other ones on this list, Jimmy Carter. Like, you know, really, am I more influential than Jimmy Carter? Charles, I, Prince I... of Wales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm looking at this list like this is kind of crazy. Okay. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson, number 51. The guy who like Jack literally. Brown. Bigger deal than yeah. Jefferson. You heard it first Jack on Brown. this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know, the guy who designed, like came up with the, uh, the, the system for which, you know, everything in Louisiana purchase is designed today. Is that person more influential or me? Um, but it, I mean, a, what a, what an incredible, you know, incredibly nice thing to have happen. And I, I think it's important for us to, to acknowledge what this is. This isn't, you know, Chuck Marone, the, you know, 10th most influential urbanist of all time. Um, this is a reflection on the Strong Towns movement. I mean, the, we have, we, and I say we in, in a very huge sense of the word here, we have taken something uh, kind of special and have grown it uh, to now be, you know, uh, literally hundreds of thousands, a million readers, um, thousands of members, people all over the world talking about planning differently because of, uh, you know, the, the conversation that we've had here and, and, you know, who knows how this thing would work out a decade from now? Um, who knows how it would work out 50 years from now? My hope is that our ideas become so mainstream that, uh, you know, it's, it's not even, it's, it's not even thought about as something new or revolutionary in which case, you know, fantastic. But, uh, I, I think it's a nice, um, acknowledgement of the work that we've done. And, uh, I certainly, you know, don't think I'm a top 10 planner of all time, but, uh, it's pretty cool. You know, it's pretty nice to have people acknowledge that. I think it's funny that I'm, I'm listed as 10 between, uh, 
Le Cabousier, which is who is nine, and Richard Florida at eleven. Um, I would probably be very critical of Le Cabousier, but uh, I'm a huge admirer of Richard Florida, so it's kind of funny. Yeah. I don't know if Richard Florida would agree with that placement. but Thanks uh, to everyone who <laughs> voted, and uh, thanks to Plan Edison, our friends over there, for uh, putting Chuck on the list in the first place. Yeah, how cool is that? Okay, I'm I'm really excited. I'm looking at this list, too. Jeanette Sadek Khan, number 16. Number 17, yeah. Robert Moses. <laughs> so I'm like, you know... Uh, it, that's really good. If it would have been the other way, that would have been a little sad because, um, you know, she's undoing a lot of the mentality or, or was undoing when she worked there and still is, but in a, in a different capacity now. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's our friend Jeff Speck. This list makes clear that it's not just, I mean, it's really influential is the key word here. It's not like favorite. Um, although we hope that we are right. your favorite, but, um, I look through this list myself and I say, here, here's some people that, you know, influenced me in a big way. I mean, here's James Howard Kunstler at 29, um, you know, Fred Leclerc Olmsted, 34, Leon Career, oh my goodness, 35. Um, to, I'm, I'm really kind of happy that Walt Disney made this list. That's pretty cool. There's uh, Ed Glazer. Mm-hmm. Ed Glazer's coming to St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is, for those of you that don't know, yeah, it's about an hour south of where I'm at friend of mine sent it to me today. She goes, should I, should I go see this? I'm like, oh yeah, totally. And then I looked at it and I realized that they're still taking proposals for the, the conference. I'm like, well, let's put in a proposal so I can go speak and I can get to meet Ed Glazer. Cause I've never met him. I would love to, uh, I'd love to meet Ed Glazer. He's on this list at, uh, at 43 astounding guy. Um, there's TJ Thomas Jefferson. Um, I can tell you who's going to be really happy about that. Um, my, uh, th- that, that Thomas Jefferson, it, that, that their dad is on the list higher than Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> my two like Hamilton obsessed daughters. Oh yeah. My daughters have gotten like a, a lesson in history from Hamilton and they think Thomas Jefferson is like the greatest scoundrel that ever lived. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, come on. Um, there's Jarrett Walker, Dan Burden. I mean, th- these are, here's our friend Joe, uh, at number 60. Yeah, cozy. a little farther down, R. John Anderson, another good. Oh yeah, rounds. Mike Lydon. Yeah, this is, this is a fantastic list. A, a lot of people who have inspired me. I mean, uh, Mitch Silver is on there at sixty-four. I mean, a guy who has has meant a lot to me personally. Uh, has done a lot to uh, encourage me and and kind of you know move me along in the uh, in the profession. So, yes, what what a fantastic list. Yeah. So. Thanks everyone who voted. It's an honor. It is incredible, you, Chuck. But uh... well, and I know I, I think for you as well, and for the entire movement of people who call themselves, you know, strong towns advocates. Uh, all I can say is thank you, and uh, keep doing what you can to build a strong town. I will keep doing what I can, and uh, let's uh, let's take a bow together on this one. So now we'll. Uh give you the episode and again apologies uh about we'll go back to the quality the crappy audio in the uh other one i, I just so that you don't get the blame for this this was like 100 percent my fault <laughs> the bad audio in the other one for some reason my microphone didn't pick up and i was going through the the uh, computer audio so yeah my fault sorry everybody but uh 
We thought better to release it crappy than not at all, right? Yeah. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Week Ahead podcast with Chuck and Rachel. Chuck, how's it going? Good. Uh, beautiful here in Minnesota. We actually have fall, like, delayed for a couple weeks, so the, the leaves are all turning now, and it is uh, gorgeous, but I, I don't, for some reason we had, like, 70-degree weather this weekend, so it was kind of crazy. We went um, up north to Lake Itasca. Have you ever been up there? Uh, no. Lake Itasca is the start, the headwaters of the Mississippi River. And it's kind of funny because, you know, having grown up here in central Minnesota, the Mississippi River is, you know, a, a river that you could, um, I, I suppose you could swim across. I mean, you could certainly, like, hit a baseball across it. It's, you know, it, it's it's wide, wide enough to have a bridge, you know, but it's not, like, really wide. I mean, you can, you can certainly, like, you know, yell across it or even talk to someone on the other side. It's it's not a huge river. Um, I was down in New Orleans and uh, saw the Mississippi River. And I thought, what is this lake? <laughs> like, that's not a lake. That's yeah. the Mississippi River. Um, at the headwaters, you actually can walk across it. I mean, you, there's like stones and you, you walk across it. It's like 25 feet wide. So it's kind of interesting to... Um, you know, go up there, and the, 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 it's just gore, it's a gorgeous place. I mean, the leaves have turned, and, and it's a state park. It's just beautiful. But it, it's kind of fun to um, go up and walk across and be like, hey, I know where this goes. This, uh, this, this bisects America. This is a pretty amazing river. So it's kind of cool to have it here in, uh, in our backyard. You also had an important baseball game last week. Is that correct? Do you not want to talk yeah. about that? Yeah, you, you really want to go there. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I got it. Right. I you know I got into it a little bit. I, I, I with a couple of Yankees fans uh, who are you know friends, and you know once the, the the rate that the Twins have been on for winning, you know once every eight or ten years, to get into it with a, a handful of Yankees fans, that, that's a that's something I'll I'll take. Um, but yeah, we uh, you know I'm a I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm particularly a huge Minnesota Twins fan. And I think the general consensus is we had a great season with a team that wasn't expected to do well, um, yet has like a ton of talent. And all of a sudden that talent was playing well. And like everything is a good vibe at this point for the Twins, even though we lost in the one game wild card playoff. I think the pain of that lasted maybe half an hour. And now we're now we're good. Now we're good again. Looking forward to spring training. So this week you're headed to New Haven, Connecticut and New York, New York uh, for some events at uh, both Yale and NYU. Uh, Are you excited for those? Um, These university presentations are an interesting, uh, an interesting venue for strong towns. It is. I I, I have to say that I I don't know a ton about the Yale one, except that, you know, they've, they've kind of filled me in on where I'm going and what I'm going to be speaking on. So I, I don't know who the audience is going to be. I assume it's going to have some students mm-hmm. in it. Uh, I do know the thing that I'm doing at New York University will have a, a number of students there. And I just, I think it's an interesting crowd when you get uh, students because it, they intuitively grasp strong towns way easier, way more quickly 
than um, people who have been in the practice for mm-hmm. a long time. When you when you when you practice day to day, you know, if you're a professional and your job is building cities, you've got a certain you know silo, a certain uh, hierarchy of thinking, and it starts to seem and feel normal to you. Students don't have that burden. They, their minds are still, in a sense, open. And, you know, they seem, they often find the stuff that I'm sharing, the stuff that Strong Towns talks about, to be incredibly intuitive, the way the general public does, really, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and, and almost to the point mm-hmm. of wondering, like, why does, why does obvious things need to be stated? Um, so yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, on the one on at New York University, I'm actually moderating a panel of real estate people, and I, I get to kind of push them a little bit. Um, it's very interesting because some of these people are, you know, Wall Street financing kind of people. Some of them, uh, you know, one guy uh, rehabs and kind of resurrects failed malls, and. They have very, these are some very accomplished people. They have really strong opinions on what's going on in the retail sector, and they don't all agree. So I'm going to be really interested to kind of push them and see where that conversation goes. We might be able to get a podcast out of that. They, they, they said I can record it, and if I can, um, if the logistics of that work out, I want to share it with everybody because I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. And I also wanted to mention that there are meetups happening um, on both of those evenings. So on uh, October 12th um, in New Haven, there's an event that evening at 8.30. And then uh, in New York that evening, there is a meetup at 8 p.m. on the 13th. I'll post all the info in the show notes. But if you're in the area, please come. You don't have to go to those earlier events to be, you know, welcomed at the meetup. So, yeah, that's going to be great. And I'm having a meetup uh, Wednesday night too with Stephen Schultes. You know, I'm staying at his place Wednesday night. Stephen Schultes has been a contributor to Strong Towns. I've had him on the podcast a couple times um, from mm-hmm. Springfield. Really love him. He's a great guy. Um, He's actually got an article coming up uh, tomorrow on our site. Oh, really? Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he was generous enough to uh, offer uh, me to stay at his place again. Uh, so I, I did that before, and he emailed me over the weekend and said, uh, you know, would you be interested in, in coming for dinner? Um, and so I'm going to, yeah, I get to have dinner with Steve and his family on Wednesday night, and I think that's going to be great. It's going to be great to be in Springfield again, a city that I've, I've been to, I think this will be my third or fourth time now. I really enjoy it. So, Well, um, check on the status of that horrible street. Without a doubt, we will, deaths, yeah. we will be doing some uh, some pushing on that street, yes. Good. So today you wrote about debt, specifically in the context of Puerto Rico. Um, tell me about what inspired that article. Last week I shared uh, on my book feed uh, a, a, an article uh, that quoted the president as saying we should wipe out debt. Um, I found this to be interesting uh, because it basically um, ran against kind of the standard, the, you know, left, right, banker, real estate, and, you know, real estate developer, the whole, the whole, it, it just kind of came out of nowhere, really. And I think 
it was one of those statements, you know, wipe out the dead, that is, um, you know, to me, both self-evident and mm. also, you know, kind of difficult for people to grasp. That was obvious after I, I shared it and made a brief comment on it myself. Uh, people had just bizarre reactions to it. Everywhere from, you know, this would be horrible because people would starve and die and, like, this is terrible for Puerto Rico, which seemed completely bizarre to me, to, like, how immoral it is for people to not pay their debts and how can we just wipe this out and, you know, it would be a country of anarchy and, and loose morals if we did. Um, it, it, it occurred to me just how crazy our conversations are when it comes to debt. I, I write about debt and I talk about cities taking on debt and, uh, you know, how we should be really cautious about doing this. And there's a large percent of the population that thinks that that is like, you know, a prudish, like backward thinking. Like, you know, what are, Chuck, you know, you, you just uh, like stick with teaching Sunday school, you know, stop talking about debt and economics, you know nothing about it. And it, it, it seems to me like we have this just very kind of dysfunctional mm -hmm. conversation about debt because debt right now today is the foundation of our entire economic system. I'm reading a book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Ooh, and good book. So I've heard. Did you read that? No, I haven't actually read it, but I've heard good oh my things gosh. about it. I've also heard it's really, I, you, really long, so that makes me less interested oh, in reading. <laughs> yeah, well, Maybe I should do like know. a chapter a week or something. It, I tell you what, it it is, um, I'm about a third of the way through it right now. We've, we've not... The book is not touched on any... I thought it would be like an economics kind of book. It is not touched on economics at all. It's been all like sociology and human relations. And yeah. I mean, it's it's been blowing my mind. It's a fascinating, fascinating book. One of the first things that he did in the book was dispel the notion that our, our modern economic system started as barter and then um, currency came out of that. Mm -hmm. um, if you, he, he actually quoted some economic textbooks where, you know, people used to trade cows for uh, corn and then shoes and then, yeah. you know, but you had to have the right. So they came up with currency and it's this nice little mythology that we've developed. And, and he just rips that apart. And he said, like, nowhere has that ever been true. Nowhere have we ever found that to be true. It's actually a ridiculous notion. The way that currency started is that people develop social relationships and we were indebted to each other because of that. I, I do you a favor. Mm -hmm. You uh, feel indebted to do me a favor. And he actually goes through all these different cultures and the way that social obligations would, would be met and, and how that related to their culture. For, for example, in cultures where ownership of property was far looser than, than what we have today... Um, you were, in a sense, obligated to give someone anything that they might want of that you have. Uh, you don't really own it. Um, so if someone, you know, say you have a, a nice pair of shoes and someone says, I, you know, gosh, my feet hurt. Um, these shoes, I, I, or I don't have a pair of shoes. You, you would have some obligation that society to give them, like, your extra pair of shoes, mm -hmm. right? Like, here you go. Um, but the, the reciprocal then was that you know, if they kind of liked your jacket, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't say, boy, you know, give me your jacket. I just gave you shoes. They might say something like, 
boy, I, you know, it's a little chilly out today. And, you know, boy, that's a, that sure is a fine looking jacket you have. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, you would feel some obligation, some pressure then to you know, give them your jacket. It was in, in this way and, and like a myriad of other complex ways that people developed essentially debts to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time found it more convenient to substitute uh, some, you know, form of accounting, whether it was seashells or, uh, you know, bags of grain or whatever it was, um, gold, you know, coins, uh, that would would substitute for essentially this debt, this obligation to each other. And I, I find that to be a um, almost like comforting way of viewing it. Um, because it starts out with something that is very human, mm-hmm. right? The the obligations we have to each other. So I tried to incorporate a little bit of that into this piece and, uh, you know, just kind of talk about how the level of debt that Puerto Rico has is not only obviously not mm-hmm. payable, but at this point, you know, not even moral to even think that it, it would be payable. Um but also try to then connect that to, you know, us and who we are, because part of the part of the reason Puerto Rico's debt must be paid is that it's owed to us. I mean, it's owned by pension funds and mutual funds, and you know, uh, your savings uh, is you know in some ways connected to what Puerto Rico owes. So if Puerto Rico doesn't pay that, you, Rachel Quidnow, are going to lose some money. You know, Chuck Marone, I will lose some money if Puerto Rico mm-hmm. doesn't pay that. There's, uh, you know, with this mountain of debt, this economy of debt that we've created, um, there is kind of a cascading effect that if debts don't get paid, um, you know, things go bad and they go bad for everybody. This was essentially 2008. You know, how, how could a few subprime mortgages cause a, a general collapse of the entire system where there wouldn't be food on the shelves in yeah. 48 hours? Well, here's why, because it's, it's all interrelated. The, uh, the answer, and, and I do think that there is an answer to this, this particular aspect of this whole suburban experiment problem, the debt part is we just need to reduce our debt. I mean... I, I, that's heretical to economists because economists think that increasing debt is how you solve these problems. Um, it, it just creates fragility everywhere. And I try to point out, you know, if, if if you reduce interest rates to zero or to, you know, just slightly a, a above 1% now today, um, there are no good investments. You know, your pension fund has to make 7 8% a year. Um, you don't have a pension fund, but I mean, it, like mm-hmm. in general, uh, the Minnesota State Pension Fund is like 70% mm-hmm. funded. So it's already you know, like underfunded, right? H- huge, billions and billions of dollars that Minnesotans, I will owe someday to someone with a pension that is no money has been set aside for. So that's like a, a burden on me and my children and our future that mm-hmm. we have to come up with. That assumes that our pension fund makes, I want to say it's like 7.5% or 8% a year. So that assumes that they're going to have this really high rate of return uh, indefinitely, like forever. If that rate of return isn't there, um, you know, that problem, that deficit, that only 70% funded grows more and more and more. Minnesota's like one of the better pension funds in the state. You go to Illinois or California, they're, they're abysmal. Here's the problem. 
You can't get 8% rate of return buying government mm-hmm. bonds. You can't get 8% of return, you know, buying home mortgages, you know, things that are of generally of low risk. Why? Because the Federal Reserve has bought all of them. They have purchased all of them. They have driven down, uh, you know, they have basically shunned the demand for capital uh, from those safe things uh, into other parts of the economy. And that means that everybody is looking for any place where they can get a return on their investment. Ergo, you know, places being willing to loan money to a broke Puerto Rico. And, and, and I mean, in a, in a functioning market, people should have stopped lending money to Puerto Rico 15, 20 years ago. I mean, it never mm-hmm. should have gotten this far because they had long passed the ability to pay it back. The, 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 per family, Puerto Ricans owe like $80,000 per family. The, the median household income is 20000 a year. I mean, this is not payable debt. There's no chance this will ever be paid back. This should have stopped years ago. Why didn't it? Because people needed yield. They needed some place they could park their money to get something back. So we've created this problem. And this is this is part of having this like weird distorted growth economy where we're going to use more and more debt to drive up, you know, more and more consumption, more and more growth. You get these weird outcroppings that are like, uh, they should be like, you know, warning signals. Like, this is not yeah. working. The foundation of this is bad. Instead, you know, we treat it as, uh, you know, um, just like a course of business. I, I think it's interesting that the president said wipe out. Because, you know, after he said that, uh, the budget director, the White House budget director came out and said, we're not going to bail out Puerto Rico. We're not going to bail out. The president didn't say bail out. He said wipe out. Like, you know, this debt can't be paid, so you're not getting your money. Um, that's a that that's not a government system. That's like the market. That's that's what happens when you loan someone. I mean, there's this old adage, you know, if 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 you owe me, uh, you know, a thousand dollars, then you know, you, I owe you. Like I I I own you, right? Like you have to pay me mm-hmm. back. But if but if you owe me, you know, a million dollars. You own me, right? Like I, I need you to yeah. to live, to be successful, to thrive, because I'm so in hock to you mm-hmm. that like your future well being becomes really critical to me. Um, you know, we're basically uh, beyond the point where Puerto Rico, you know, owes anybody anything. I mean, really, when when you're in debt that far, what do you have to lose at this point? You know. Just don't pay it. And that's basically what they've done. They're just like, we're not paying. Yeah. Um, they're way better off doing that. That that is that is what happens in a marketplace when you, you know, when you have too much debt. And um, you know, the fact that we got this far without all the 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 you know, the lights blinking red and things going bad and their interest rates spiking, their cost of borrowing spiking and all that. That should just tell you right there, like, this system is does not work. This system that we're putting all our faith in, that somehow the market's going to determine the right rate of interest once the Fed tinkers with the bottom, it, it doesn't work. It's not, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. It's not working. Yeah, it's, it's particularly tragic that this conversation has to come out and be brought to the forefront when the, you know, when Puerto Rico is in such a horrible state after this hurricane. I mean, of course, the last thing they 
could think about is paying off debt when they have people, you know, without water and electricity. It is, and it isn't. I mean, I, I think it's a, I, I, that you make a good point, but I, I think that that is the narrative of, of debt, right? We say, okay, the U.S. has a $20 trillion national debt. Um, the Federal Reserve, you know, has grown their balance sheet by trillions since 2008. We have all these things that we've done, you know, and we've justified them all along the way because, oh, this, you know, times are bad. We got to do, you know, we got to run deficits. We've got to borrow money. We've, you know, at the local level, we have to build a stadium. We have to build a convention center. We have to get that uh, highway interchange put in. You know, there's always like a justification and an urgency in the moment. And then when you get to the point where like an actual real emergency happens, you know, uh, a hurricane wipes out, uh, you know, major population centers, your electric grid goes completely down. You, you have all these things and you're like, oh, my gosh, I wish I had the capacity uh, to fix this stuff. Then you find out that all those other things were kind of silly in comparison. Right. Mm hmm. This this feels like lessons from my grandparents, you know, <laughs> I mean, you think about like my grandparents who lived through the Depression and, you know, knew what that was like. They lived so prudently. They saved their money. They were like penny pinchers. They were frugal. I remember my grandfather, um, you know, walking along the side of the road, like picking up aluminum cans on his walks. Uh, to bring them back and crush them and then bring them to the recycling place and, and you know, get, you know, $8 for all these aluminum cans that he spent hours, like, collecting and crushing and what have you. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Grandpa, this just seems, like, dumb. And it 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 was, in a way, I mean, in a sense, um, you know, that, that time and energy would have been better spent somewhere else, maybe. But for him, it was like, you don't waste. Like, you know, you... You, you get if you can get eight dollars here, you get eight dollars here, and you save that. You put it away. You you uh, you never know what's going to happen. You never know, uh, you know what the future is going to hold. You may need that. Yeah. And we're so like blasé about that. We're just so like it's not in anyone's mode of thinking. Um, it's not in any city's mode of thinking. It's not in any local government. It's not in our families really. Um, it, you know, it's not part of our culture anymore. And we kind of look back historically and you can see the last time that as a culture we really embraced that was the 1920s. Um, you know, the go-go doesn't matter. Like, you know, we, we got it all figured out. Um, and uh, it kind of feels the same way to me, you know? Yeah. On that note. <laughs> uh, On that note, hey, everybody. Thanks to all of our new members of Strong Towns who joined us last week. Uh, thank you especially to Tom Armstrong of Elgin, Illinois, Paula Bacon of South Dennis, Massachusetts, Catherine Benavides of Naples, Florida, Gary Burns of Dallas, Texas, Eric Hammer of Cincinnati, Ohio, Kathleen Ling of Mount Pleasant, Michigan, Annie Pierce of Radford, Virginia, Bill Scott of Portland, Oregon, James Ward of Orlando, Florida, and Kyle Winning of Little Rock, Arkansas. Wow, that's a great list. Thank you all for joining us. And that list is really exemplary of the geographic diversity of Strong Towns, I'll say. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's just fantastic. And I tell you what, last week we got a lot, lot of good feedback on, um, I did anyway, on the content and on the podcast. And uh, people were really excited. Um, 
it's, it's kind of a fun time to be here at Strong Towns, isn't it? A lot of momentum. Yeah. And actually, I'm glad you mentioned feedback because I wanted to invite our podcast listeners. If you have um, specific feedback about this podcast, I'd be really curious to hear it. Um, we've been doing this one for, I don't know, a couple years now. And we've kind of been doing the same sort of topics and segments. But I would love to hear if our listeners would like a different Things discussed, um, have general feedback, comments, um, please email them to me. I'll include my email uh, in the show notes. And yeah, that's, you know, we're, we're always listening to feedback and appreciating it. Less from that blowhard that's always talking on and on. <laughs> <laughs> that's why people are here, Chuck. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Final question. Um, books and podcasts that you have been into lately? Is it mostly well, just that, that debt book? I mean, that one's going to take you a little while, right? Yeah, yeah. That one is is fascinating. I also got that, that cognitive architecture book that we talked about a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, uh, oh my gosh. It just has blown my mind. I, I actually um, have sent it to, I, I, I purchased additional copies, even though it's, it's, a, it's a small book. And it's like $45 a copy. It's it's like ridiculously overpriced for what you're getting. Yeah, but it must be like an the, academic sort of press or something. It, get away it might that. be. But it is so good. I mean, it's it's so mind-blowing. And I actually sent it to a couple architecture friends of mine, um, just asking them, like, do they teach you this stuff? Like, am, am I ignorant of this stuff because I'm an engineer and a planner and, like, we don't deal with these things? Is this something that architects grasp? For example... And I, I can't think of the term now, um, but there's a term uh, that describes how uh, creatures travel a, a, along the edges of walls. I can speak to that firsthand because we have an ant problem right now, and they are always crawling along the edge of the kitchen countertop. <laughs> there you go. There you go. You you you, you look. It, they said that even in like you know, take a petri dish of uh, of you know, molecules or what, you know, single-celled organisms, and then put a, um, a, a barrier in there. And what you'll find is that they start to travel along the edge of that. Um, think about a mouse. You know, a, a mouse never goes across yeah. the middle of the floor. Uh, you'd be, like, too exposed. A mouse, even if it goes the opposite side of the room, will travel mm -hmm. along the edge. There's something like primal and instinctual about having an edge to travel along. And when you take that insight and you transfer that to the design of cities, it very quickly explains why like a main street feels very comfortable where a Walmart parking lot, you feel naked and exposed yeah. and vulnerable. And, you know, like little things like that, that I suspect, you know, there are you know, architecture courses where they teach this stuff and it, it is part of, you know, what they learn. We get none of this in urban planning school. Like it like I was in a, a policy heavy program, not a urban design heavy program. Um, but a lot of planning schools are, are like that. We got none of this, like zero. Like that, that th these are all like new for you know, new concepts to me. Interdisciplinary study is so needed and sadly still rare in our society, I think, except for, you know, a few sorts of like liberal arts programs and stuff, at least try to do that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by these sorts of intersections. 
after World War II, we went through this period of time where uh, all the professions became like hyper specialized and uh, you know very exclusive, and you know maybe that was necessary in terms of developing the expertise in each of those veins. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to second guess that, but I can tell you today. Uh, what I would encourage my children to do, what I would encourage any person looking at college to do, is to to try to be a generalist. I mean, I I think that the future um, is is going to uh, belong to people who can work across disciplines. And when I say generalist, I don't mean you know uh, uh, someone who knows a little bit about a lot of things but someone who you know maybe knows a lot about something but also knows a little bit about anything that's related to it i mean i i i feel like you know the thing that we've done here at strong towns i i've said this many times like it's been a decade or more since i've read a planning book mm-hmm. i don't read any planning books i i, I just read other stuff you know um uh, to me, that that is the uh, I, I I I find fascinating people who are able to cross over into into different realms because I I truly do believe that connecting these knowledge centers and all these different professions is where the future is. I could not agree more. All right, y'all. We will wrap it up for today. Um, we should have. Did you just say y'all as yeah. if you're like not from Minnesota? Yeah, I like that. It's a good catch-all. Uh, all right, no, you guys. The, the other way to say it is you guys, but yeah. y'all is quicker and more fun. <laughs> like, when did you? Did, is that how they talk in Wisconsin now? No, y'all? I started that a while ago. I don't know where it came. Okay. From. I'll, I'll respect it. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I don't want you to, I don't, I don't want you to lose out on your, uh, your true native roots here. You know, we're, um, <laughs> we don't, no one in my, no one, no one in my neighborhood says y'all. Okay. Well, you guys, uh, have a good Monday and oh, we'll be... you betcha, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with an awesome podcast for you on Thursday featuring me and Kia. So get excited. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.